Well, good morning. It's always good to be together. Uh, if you haven't noticed, I'm struggling with something that's making my voice sound a little bit more annoying than usual. So I apologize for that. I've been drinking water. I got a steroid shot. I don't feel any stronger, but uh, I think hopefully it'll help, help us get through this together. The first thing that I want to point out to you this morning is that in our, our church lobby at the Welcome Center and then in classes, uh, we're providing these invitation cards for uh, people in your life, uh, maybe a person or a family in your life who you know doesn't have a, a meaningful relationship with the church. Um, this may be a really easy way for you to invite them to join us in the month of December. Studies, we looked all over the internet, the, the most recent numbers we could come up with are that two out of three people who are surveyed that don't currently go to church anywhere say, you know what, if somebody I know asked me to go, I think I'd try it. And so these cards might be a real simple way for you to start that conversation again. Uh, on the front is just a basic description of the sermon series that we'll be focused on throughout the month of December. But on the back, we've got three uh, visitor-friendly events that we want them to know about that we're inviting them to be a part of. Christmas caroling, breakfast with Santa, and then an encouragement party that we're going to have a little later this month. All of which would be easy, low-key ways uh, to get to meet people, new people, our neighbors. So I want to encourage you and your family uh, to be praying and thinking, who's that person, who's that other family that you might be able to, to give this card to uh, leading up to December? And it's, it's not going to be, you know, if we get halfway through December and you haven't said anything, please, who is it in your life that you feel like you could reach out and invite to be a part of what we're doing here? We want to be a church that's welcoming and, and thoughtful of the people in our lives who don't have a meaningful church relationship. Secondly, I want you to know about an event that's coming up next Sunday night. Uh, we're just simply calling it Worship Night, uh, and it's going to take place in the Student Center at 6 o'clock. It's going to be a special time of worship that's going to be pretty different from what we do in here on an average Sunday morning, uh, but it's going to be fun, it's going to be encouraging, it's going to be a way for us to connect. Uh, we do have child care for, for those kids two years and under, but the rest of us will be celebrating and worshiping together. So if you have any way to be a part of this next Sunday night at 6 o'clock, we would love for you to join us. Would you pray with me? God, we come before you as your people. We come before you with our hopes and we come before you with our fears. We come before you this morning with a sense of our blessings and we come to you this morning at times struggling to see those blessings. And as we continue this morning to open up our hearts, to open up your word, to focus on a family who is in many ways obsessed with trying to pursue your blessings. We pray that you would help us to be people who open our lives and our hearts and our futures to whatever it is that you long to do with us and through us. God, we pray that you would help us to be changed by what we hear. And I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, each one of us in this room will hear precisely what you are calling us to. It is in your son's name we pray. Amen. So the, the quick way to step into the story of Jacob and his family is simply to say that Jacob is a deeply flawed person 
who comes from a family that's just about as dysfunctional as you're ever going to find. And it's really important for us to know that when we open up Scripture, we find people who, who have moments in their lives or who have experiences that we can relate to. And some of those experiences are positive and some of those experiences are negative. None of us wants to have to, to live in a dysfunctional family. But because people aren't perfect, if you're in a family, it's a dysfunctional family. And, and so we, we want to be able to, to see the ways we connect to this story. Now, a lot of it's going to be far more challenging and dysfunctional than anything that you and I face in our families on a daily basis. But if you think through the motivations that are driving this dysfunctional family and the members in it, if you think about what they're really trying to achieve, what they're really trying to do, I think all of us at one time or another, we connect and we relate. Now here's what we need to remember when we're reading narratives, right? When we're reading stories in scripture, you, you can't assume that anybody in the story, any ordinary human being, is living precisely the way God wants them to. Right? So you can't hold up anybody in the Old Testament and say, this person does everything exactly the way God would want them to do, so I want to base my life on every single decision they make. I mean, if you try to do that with Abraham, you're going to get in trouble really quick. Right? If you try to do that with anybody, you're going to get to a place where you realize that what Scripture is trying to say is, this story is about Everyday, ordinary people, even people who find themselves in the midst of dysfunctional families. And here's what scripture wants us to know about those stories. God is in those stories. God has not abandoned families to themselves to try to figure things out. God is with them. God is walking beside them. And regardless of whether or not they can see a hopeful future, God always can. I mean, Jacob and his family... They'll do anything, they'll say anything to get the kind of narrowly defined future they want for themselves. And the term that's used throughout their life story, that narrowly defined future is blessing. But see, it's blessing that they think they can make happen. So they'll, they'll try any strategy they can come up with and they'll, they'll hurt one another. And as we all know, family pain is the worst kind of pain to have to try to get through, to, to, to try to survive. Because family pain is caused by those people who you share life with the most, so you feel like you should be able to rely on the most. And here we have all these people betraying each other, misleading each other, lying to one another to get whatever it is they want. And here's the crucial piece. They think that blessing, there's a fixed amount of it, and so we're competing for it. And if I'm going to get more blessing in my life, then it means you automatically have to have less blessing in your life. Now, God's tried to make this clear, that the blessing he's spoken over them and their family and through their family, he's speaking to the human family, right? He, he's not just wanting to bless them. He's wanting to bless everyone on the face of the earth, everyone who's ever going to, to walk on the face of the earth. He wants to bless all of us through them. I don't know about you, that sounds limitless to me. That doesn't sound like some sort of, of pie chart that starts to get so, so divided up that, 
that your portion isn't worth having. That sounds like God is saying, just trust me, I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless everyone. And it's going to keep happening that way from now through the end of time. But they don't hear that. They just hear, I want to bless you. And their experience of every good thing in life is, of course, it's limited. Of course, you can't just think that it's going to keep coming the way that it's always been showered into your life. And so you've got to figure out a way to get ahead. And so Jacob, Jacob starts to think, you know what? My name means schemer and con man and liar and manipulator. So I might as well live into that name. I might as well live into my skill set. And take advantage of the situation. The problem is he's, he's deciding he's going to take advantage of his brother Esau. And there's an issue going on here because they live in a world where the firstborn son gets, always gets the most from their parents. Right? They have the greatest inheritance. And if you think that blessing is just having the kind of future you want, part of that is having the financial resources to fund the future you want. Jacob's got a problem. He's not going to get as much as his older brother Esau. We say older. We mean by a few minutes, right? Because they're twins. And it feels like a true, cruel a twist of fate that Esau was born before Jacob. And Jacob wants to try to figure out a way to even the, the, the playing field. So the first thing he does is he kind of tricks Esau at a time when Esau feels like he's starving to death Jacob makes this meal that smells incredible, and he says, you know what, I'll give you a bowl of soup if you'll give me your birthright. And Esau, because he's so hungry, he says, fine, whatever. And he doesn't understand that it's not just some side conversation they're having. It's like Jacob, you know, is going to somehow take this claim, and he's going to go to his parents and say, look, we had this conversation, and Esau said, I could have his birthright. And then when that doesn't quite achieve everything Jacob's looking for. He's got to figure out how to really make sure that that things turn out the way he wants. So he goes to his mother because he knows, Rebecca, he he goes to her because he's her favorite. Right? And this isn't like that situation where somebody says, you have a favorite kid, and you're like, no, no, no. I mean, if you went to Rebecca and said, you have a favorite kid, she's like, yeah, it's Jacob. I'd much rather spend time with Jacob than Esau. Have you been around Esau? Have you smelled Esau? He's out in the fields all the time. He's working all the time. He's hunting all the time. Yeah, Jacob, Jacob's my favorite son. That's a part of the dysfunction of the family. And, and Jacob takes advantage of it. He says, Mom, i got to figure this out. How are you going to help me get the future that you and I both believe we deserve? But Isaac, my father, your husband, and, and Esau, they don't care about it. And, and together they hatch this plan. Esau's lost his vision as he gets older. He can't see. All he can do is is smell and hear. And so they figure out how to disguise Jacob, send him into this blind man, and and convince him that he's really Esau. And so Isaac speaks words, binding, powerful words of blessing over Jacob that he thinks he's giving to Esau. And all of them still think that blessing is limited, and once it's given, it can't be shared. And if it's shared, it's going to run out. And so this is like setting off a nuclear bomb in the middle of their family. They've chosen sides, and things will never be the same. And so Rebecca says, look, Esau, he's going to kill you, Jacob, if he finds you. So I need you to get out of here and don't come back. And so Jacob runs. He runs to his uncle Laban. He's trying to find a safe place. 
He, he meets Laban. He gets there. Laban says, yeah, I'll take care of you. I've got plenty of work for you to do. Here's my two daughters, Leah and Rachel. Now the firstborn Leah, the secondborn Rachel. Jacob falls in love, and I mean falls in love, head over heels with Rachel. And Laban sees an opportunity, his uncle, the guy who's supposed to be taking care of him, he sees an opportunity to use Jacob's love for Rachel against him. And I'm not going to go into all the details, but he somehow fixes it where he, he gets to a place where Jacob, if he wants to marry Rachel, is also going to have to marry Leah and take care of her for the rest of her life. I, I cannot imagine how Leah feels in the midst of all this. I can't get anyone to marry you honestly, but I can trick this guy. He doesn't look too bright to me. You know, I, again, uncle. He's supposed to be somebody you can trust who's looking out for you. And this goes on for 20 years where Jacob's trying to have this, this interaction with his uncle and time and again, every time it seems that they're, they're trying to figure out how things are going to actually go and whether or not Jacob's going to get what they've negotiated and whether or not... Laban's just like Jacob. And in some ways you read it and you think, Jacob, you deserve an uncle like Laban. Right? You had this coming. And this doesn't exactly feel like the life of blessing the future that Jacob risked everything to have, except for the fact that by the time you get to 20 years in of dealing with Laban, God has worked through Jacob's work, and he has amassed great wealth. And then he decides, I've had enough of this. I, I have one too many wives. I'm getting out of here. I'm going home. He wants to go home. And I think all of us at one time or another in our lives, whether our, our departure from home is difficult or whether it simply comes in the natural progression of life, we all can reach a place at one time or another where we have a longing for home. But if you leave in the kind of way that Jacob left, well, you got a problem in coming home because you blew up all the bridges on the way out. And there's one there is one way back home, and it goes through Esau. And according to the ways of the world, Esau has every right to viciously attack, to violently attack his brother Jacob for stealing the kind of future life Esau had coming to him. Right? He has every right to say, Sure, after 20 years, you, you go off and you get married, you have this family, you have 11 kids, you, you have all of this wealth. Sure, now that everything's worked out for you, you want to come back. Well, it's not going to happen. Right? That, that's what you, you would think could, could very well be the outcome. And Jacob knows it. Jacob knows how he would feel if Esau had treated him that way and now he was kind of come back and, and act like, you know, you just kind of put a, a Band-Aid over a gaping emotional wound and act like, well, it's been 20 years. Surely time has helped. Well, I don't know if you know this about difficulties in families, but you want time to help, but it doesn't always help. And, and in fact, it can, it can make things a lot worse. And Jacob's had no contact with Esau, so he has, he has no idea how Esau has used the past 20 years, how he's feeling about any of it, but he's, he's, he wants to go home bad enough. It's worth it to him to take the risk. Now, he knows that this, this encounter that he, he needs, that he wants to go well, he's, he's trying to come up with a, a speech, I'm sure, 
but he knows it could boil over from this all or nothing encounter to a life or death conflict. And he needs time to think about it. He, he needs time to deal with it. So he, he sends his family, his wives, his children, his flocks and his herds, he sends them uh, away from him far enough so that he can clear his head and he can think. And it's nighttime, and he's alone. And it turns out that being in the dark all alone makes you pretty vulnerable. And that's where we're going to open up the story together now. If you've got a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 32. We'll start reading together in verse 22. Genesis 32, 22. So that night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. And I think part of the reason he's doing this is if Esau sees his, his children and his family and his wives, it might soften his heart a little bit. And, and then if they're followed by his possessions and Esau can be bought off, then maybe after seeing all their sweet faces and then seeing a pile of money, Esau might think this is a decent apology. But Jacob was left alone. <clears throat> and I love how just direct this description is. He was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Like that's what happens when you're left alone at night. Right? That's not the normal course of things. When the man saw that he couldn't overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. I want to say something there about verse 25. When it says the man saw that he could not overpower him, I think, I think what you've got to add to understand it is he couldn't overpower him without destroying him. Right? Jacob just wasn't going to stop. Because it's obvious it's not a matter of power. When you just touch somebody on the hip, and it wrenches it out of socket, um, it's pretty clear who the more powerful wrestler is. And the man, uh, Then the man said, let me go, for it's daybreak. And this has something to do with, I don't want, to see, I don't, I don't want you to see me clearly. Right? The sun's coming up, we've been wrestling in the dark, I don't want you to see my face. Jacob replied, fine man, but I'm not letting you go unless you bless me. This is the t-shirt Jacob could wear, and it would be true every day of his life. This is who he is. I'm not leaving this meeting. I'm not leaving this car. I'm not leaving this conversation. I'm not leaving this wrestling match unless I come out ahead. The man said, what's your name? This is core to the story of Jacob. We've talked about it. We know his name and we know what it means. Jacob said, the man said, you know what? Your name's no longer going to be Jacob. It's no longer going to be liar and manipulator. It's not going to be cheater and thief. It's going to be Israel because you've struggled with God and against human beings and you've, you've made it, right? You've overcome. And Jacob then said, well, please tell me your name. 
And he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed them there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. He was limping. Now, it doesn't matter how many times I read this story, I just can't completely account for all of it. I can't make sense of all of it. It's as if the storyteller wants us to have a similar experience of, of just being unsettled that Jacob had to have. You know, he's trying to figure out how he's going to come home. He's trying to figure out what it's going to cost to come home. But he gets to this place where he's alone in the dark and he gets attacked. And I would imagine he was attacked from, from the back, right? He's walking around trying to think if somebody form tackles him. And who does he have to assume it is? Esau. Right, that somehow his older brother figured out his plan and waited till everybody left and was back there in the, in the brush waiting for his moment to strike. And so he starts to, to wrestle his brother. And if it's Esau wrestling him in the dark, what does Jacob have to assume is about to happen? He's going to die. Right, his older brother, who's always had more skills and ability to fight, is, is going to is going to kill him. And again, according to the way they see the world, according to everything Jacob took from Esau, there's a bunch of people that would think, you know what? It makes total sense that these two brothers who had a 20-year-old grudge decided to settle it, and they had a fight to the death, and Esau walked out, and Jacob, Jacob didn't leave the, the wrestling match, and fine. It's fair. It's justice. It's the way things should work. So if Jacob doesn't win this, he's not going to walk away. So he does what he can, right? He fights for his life. He punches and he, and he shoves and he kicks and he struggles to get the upper hand. And right at the moment where it seems like he might overcome this adversary on his own, right at the moment where he thinks he might actually walk away from this thing, this unknown wrestler who by now Jacob knows is not Esau and now he's got to be even more confused this guy just reaches out and touches him, and the pain has to be unbearable. And even then, Jacob won't let go, because that's how much a kind of future that he's desperate to have, that's how much it means to him. Right? He won't let go, and he says, no, 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 no. I can tell the kind of power that you have, and it's way more power than I have. So, so give me something. Bless me. And the, and the moment, that, that, that conversation is so interesting because it's clear when we read it that, that the moment we thought was going to be victory for Jacob, physical victory and, wiz, and winning the, the, the wrestling match, I feel like the, the shift is instantaneous where he loses the wrestling match, but, but this stranger wants to have this encounter. Right? And so he loses, he's defeated, but then he's blessed anyway. And I don't know how to make sense of that. That's the part that, that doesn't really, it's never, as many years as I've studied this, I don't quite know what to do with this. Because Jacob deserves to lose the fight. He does. And when he loses the fight, he somehow wins anyway. 
have warned you more than once. I think Jacob is a dangerous story to tell children as if it's some sort of morality tale where you can say the kinds of things that happen to Jacob will work just, just fine for you. And this is one of those key moments where I think, I don't know what we're supposed to take from this. The man asks Jacob his name, and Jacob tells him. The man gives him a new name. I don't want you walking around with the name thief and liar and con man. I, want you to, I do want you to have a name that involves struggle. You've been struggling and fighting your whole life against people, and you've been struggling and fighting your whole life against God. You just haven't known it. See, that's the thing. It takes all night and then daybreak for Jacob to start to understand. It takes this conversation when he's in unbearable pain for Jacob to see who he's really been wrestling with, not just all night, but all of his life. It's God. God is this nameless, faceless stranger who's always been in the background of, of Jacob's life. By his decision, God didn't want to be in the background of Jacob's life. But Jacob was too busy focused on everything else he was trying to get for himself. But God's been there the whole time, pushing and pulling against Jacob. God's the one who's been trying to let Jacob understand that there's a difference between the things worth fighting for and the things worth laying down your life for. God is the one who's always wanted Jacob to make the right choice. I want you to hear this. God wants Jacob to make the right choice without being made to choose the right thing. God's the one who's always longed for stubborn, hard-headed Jacob to have a strong will that isn't violently taken away by God, but is finally volunteered, surrendered to God. God's the one who's willing to fight with Jacob long enough to help Jacob stop fighting and to start trusting. Trusting God with his life, Trusting God with his future, trusting God with his everything. One of my favorite Christian authors, Frederick Beekner, talks about this story. And it's always the, the quote that I come back to when I'm trying to understand this strange moment in Jacob's life. He says, the blessing that God offers the defeated Jacob is not a blessing that Jacob can have by, uh, by the strength of Jacob's cunning or the force of Jacob's will, which is how he's gotten everything else in his life, right? And it makes sense that he would rely on that. It is a blessing that Jacob can only have as a gift. God is the enemy that Jacob fought there by the river, of course, and whom in one way or another all of us fight. God, the beloved enemy. Our enemy, because before giving us everything, he demands of us everything. And we don't tend to give up everything without a fight. Right? He demands of us everything. Will we, will we give it all to him, you and I? I don't know. But remember this, Beekner says, the last glimpse we have of Jacob is the picture of a man limping home in the dawn, far more blessed than he's hurt. And remember that there is a defeat that is truly a victory, and it is the magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. I don't know how you ever are smart enough or wise enough to write that sentence. The magnificent defeat of a human soul at the hands of God. Not a defeat where we are violently overcome, but a defeat where we are fought long enough to come to our own senses. 
Every single one of us, like Jacob, we desperately want a certain kind of future, don't we? A narrowly defined kind of future, a future filled to overflowing with a specific list of blessings. In fact, this time of year, a lot of us have been asked by our extended families to start sending them lists of the kinds of things we would like to make us happy. We want the best possible kind of future life the the version of life that we can imagine. And we tend to think that the only way to get that amazing version of life is to look out for ourselves more than anyone else. We think that we have to take advantage of situations and of people that present themselves to us. And if we're not careful, brothers and sisters, it is pretty easy for us to convince ourselves that there's really no crime, right? There's really not much harm in getting ahead because of someone else's foolishness or weakness or confusion. We, we can get to the place where we're thinking, look, there's no, there's no law on the books against manipulating people around us to help us get one step closer to that narrow future that we want. But deep down, we all know better, don't we? Deep down, we know that the true cost of winning at all costs is more than we're really ready to pay. Because the true cost of getting every new shiny thing we've ever wanted, the true cost is our hearts and souls. It's the core of who we are and who we can be. That's what we're placing at risk when we're willing to do whatever it takes. And the God who gave us the gift of life, brothers and sisters, just simply isn't willing to sit back and watch us wreck our own lives and scar the lives of others because we don't trust him enough. The God who created us isn't willing to look the other way as we we pick a bunch of foolish, self-centered fights that we think we can win. So at some time or another in your life, if it hasn't happened yet, I can promise you it will. God steps in and he wrestles with us. He fights us. If we're going the wrong way, if we're doing the wrong thing, he fights against us. In the midst of loving us, he, he wrestles with us. And he convicts us and he, and he tries to open our eyes to see the truth of all that we're sacrificing on the altar of self-centeredness. That our world keeps telling us this is the way of life. This, you build it around you and what you want and you say you do anything to get there. God wants to wake us up to see that we're sacrificing so much on that altar of self-centeredness. We are sacrificing in the end every meaningful relationship we may ever have with our family, with our friends. We are, in fact, in the pursuit of trying to build the the perfect future, we are sacrificing our chance at a faithful future. God loves us enough to fight us, to fight back against our worst impulses and our darkest temptations. You can call it a conscience, and some people do. You, You can call it coincidence when we hit rock bottom. You can call it some charitable strand of human nature or events that suddenly happen and then change your perspective. But whatever you want to call it, the truth is, brothers and sisters, it's God. It's God. God is wrestling with us to wake us up. God's struggling against us that we'll realize that no matter what's happened so far, there's still time left for us to fight for our souls. There's still time to stop privately deciding that the only realistic way to have a good life is 
is to decide you're going to have to do some not-so-good things. The only good life worth having, it isn't a version of life we can achieve on our own through any kind of strategy or, or any kind of ability or anything where we, we feel like we might be able to pull off. We can't achieve it on our own. The only good wor- life worth having has to be given to us as a gift. I don't care what Jacob told people later. That guy who was wrestling didn't have to bless him. <laughs> and we know what Jacob told people later because it's in Genesis 32. Right? He told the truth. He didn't win that wrestling match. God, the one who'd been fighting against him, struggling, wrestling to wake him up, he chose He chose freely to bless him. It's a gift. And it is so hard for us to stop in our world, stop grasping and grabbing and trying to take advantage, trying to to claw every inch of of the kind of life we want. It's so hard for us to stop and realize that the only kind of future worth having is the kind of future God's going to have to choose to give you. And you can't make him give it to you. You can only surrender and trust that life. It's, it's given to us like grace. It's given to us by grace. It is, in fact, it's grace. A grace that embraces us and won't let us go until we understand, until we trust and stop putting so much trust in ourselves. Jacob's story reminds us that, you know, that wrestling match with God, it's, It's not all easy. It's not rainbows and butterflies. It's a struggle. It's a fight. And you might feel like it hurts. And I've, in my own life, struggled with that that transformation process hurting. But the healing we find, Genesis 32 says, the healing we find will always overcome the hurt. The blessing we encounter will outshine the burden And, you know, I'll I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I think I spend more time wrestling with myself than I spend wrestling with God. I can't even get to the wrestling match with God. I'm too busy settling things with me. You know, I have moments where I think, okay, I understand who I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be doing, how I'm supposed to be talking to people, how I'm supposed to be serving people. I got it, okay, and then something happens and I lose my way and I realize I've, I've been making all these mistakes and then I try to overcorrect from those mistakes I've made and somehow I, I find myself in the place I never intended to be. What I'm trying to say is that wrestling match with yourself tends to turn you in circles, Just go around and around with yourself trying to make yourself the kind of person who will have the kind of future you're desperately wanting to have. You wrestling yourself can't find your way home. That's what Jacob wants in in, in this, this part of his life story. He wants to go home, but he can't go home because he doesn't know how to get home. And then God steps in and the true wrestling match Jacob needs happens. Several years ago, I attended a ministry conference in Rochester Hills, Michigan, and during one of the sessions, I I got the chance to listen to this young ministry couple in their early 30s uh, start to to talk about their story. And I'll make it as brief as possible. The husband had recently found out that he had a rare, aggressive form of cancer, and he had three to six months to live. 
And they talked about the difficulty of finding that out in the midst of trying to plant a brand new church and reach people in their community that they felt like their own church really wasn't equipped to reach. And I remember listening to the story, expecting at some point for them to go through some, some moment, some memory of finding out his diagnosis and a conversation at the dinner table or, or maybe on a walk where they talked about their frustration with God either causing this to happen to him or letting it happen to him. And, and I know what I'd be thinking. I know all the, the things I would want to bring up with God. I know the way I would be fighting against what was happening. And yet they didn't talk like that at all. They brought it up. They brought up the expectation, the audience, that, that you probably expect us to be angry with God and feel betrayed by God. But you know what? We don't personally blame God for all the bad that's in our lives. We believe that there's all kinds of powers in the world that cause some bad things to happen to us. We want to praise God for the good that's still in our lives in the midst of all the bad. We want to hold on to that. We're listening to that thing. I don't, I don't know that I'm there. And I wasn't there. Because you can't get there unless you're through wrestling. Right? You can't get to that place unless you're on the other side of that suffering. They had a peace that passed understanding that was somehow covering the brokenness of their lives. They had a joy that was overcoming unspeakable sorrow and pain. And they weren't pretending it was who they really were becoming. Because they had wrestled with those thoughts. They had wrestled with those feelings. And they had found that God wasn't fighting against them. God wanted to bless them in the midst of their fight. And when they were done, the, the whole place gave them a thunderous standing ovation because we knew what we'd witnessed. And here's what I want you to know. When they got up, when they were done, they were sitting on two chairs as they did their presentation. When they got up, he needed help from his wife because he was limping. And I believe it is the same exact limp that Jacob had all those years ago. Because God's not promising us a future without a limp. He's not promising us a future where everything goes smoothly and exactly the way we want. He's promising us a future where he's by our side every limping step of the way. And Jacob has to decide in that moment. And I'm sure he was never 100% certain if it was God or, or the best wrestling angel God could send. He wasn't quite sure exactly, which means he wasn't quite sure exactly who had caused him to have a limp. But I promise you this, he was going to limp next to God for the rest of his life. Into that future God wanted for him. And that husband... That husband didn't outlive his diagnosis. I watched it unfold on Facebook and video blogs. and Devastating to watch. But because it's been a handful of years since then, I've also been able to watch God work miracles of blessing in the midst of the grief and the sorrow and the pain. And to this day, they have never, ever, given up their faith or their trust that God loves them and is with them.
That's the kind of choice you and I have to make. And do we really believe that that kind of struggle-filled future could also be a life filled to overflowing with blessing? You and I can't achieve the life that we want. It has to be given to us. And for that to happen, you and I have to stop fighting against the one who wants to shower it all over every moment of every day of the rest of our lives. We're going to sing now together, and as we do, our, our shepherds and their spouses will be in various places throughout the church lobby. You can get to them through any of these major doors. They want to pray with you. They want to be there for you. They want to help you in the midst of the struggle. So if you have anything this morning that you want to talk with them about, pray with them about, please go to them as together we stand and sing.